Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, recording for the first time, episode 24 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. We're into season three now, if you're just listening to this one as your first podcast listen. Hey, excuse my frumpy appearance. This is Barb with dirty hair and weird bangs and needing a hair coloring job and sweaty workout clothes, but I take my free time when I get it. We as a family are just coming off of a COVID sort of quarantine thing. Really enjoying alone time. I haven't been alone in like 20 days. So as I start off, it's a beautiful sunny Saturday. It's February 5th, I guess, here in Concord, New Hampshire, lovely Concord. And it's freezing cold. So I I just am sort of aching for the days when the weather is warm. As I have said before, my daughter Gracie is in Disney and she sends wonderful pictures of sitting on the beach and walking around different Disney parks in her little shorts and tank tops. And I think, oh, good for you, Gracie, living your best life. I really, I really love that for someone like Gracie, who's gone through all that she's gone through, I get teary-eyed thinking about how proud I am of her. She's come a long way and she's had a long way to come. Her life threw her some pretty nasty curveballs, which is unfortunate. And actually this, this series of episodes talks about, you know, is in the period of time between my job loss and the loss of Molly. And those were the beginning of hard times for the girls, for Gracie and for Molly. You know, that the job loss put an incredible strain on my marriage. The marriage ended actually, but we stayed living together on and off. We separated. We'd separate for a few months and get back together. Kenny's dialysis really, really drove a lot of our housing decisions because he needed to be nearby and all that had to be convenient. And finally, toward the end of that period of time, we got an apartment just a couple of miles from the house and that was perfect. We could... We could each actually have our separate space. And then when we were here together or one at a time with the kids, it was calm. And actually, the hard part about this is it took us a couple of years to figure out that we needed to be separate and that we got that apartment and we furnished it. And so when I was at the apartment for the week, it was my week there. I stayed there. I woke up there. I went to bed there. And Kenny was here with the girls and he had all the responsibilities that come with it. And then when he was at the apartment and I was here, I had all the responsibilities. Now, here's where we could work really well together. He had three days a week of dialysis and that was his time at then was six in the morning. So on those mornings, Tuesdays and Thursdays, when he was going off to dialysis, Gracie and Molly were in middle school and high school. They couldn't get themselves to school on their own. I mean, they, they could get up and get on a bus, you know. So I would get up at 5.30 and get here. I'd arrive shortly after he left and I'd wake up the girls and give them breakfast and make their lunches and bring them to school and have an awesome morning, even though it was his week. It made sense. They didn't need to be by themselves. And then On the other side of the coin, I have school boards. So I had lots of evening school board meetings. So if I had two school board meetings and it was a home week for me, Kenny would come here and he'd cook dinner and spend the evening with the girls. And when I got home from school board, he'd leave. I remember a couple of weeks before I left for Amsterdam, Molly saying to me, mom, it's finally working. Like the fighting has stopped and this is right. You know, and you and daddy can live apart and still get along. And it was intense. And sort of, I thought, I thought, as I went off on that vacation, that, that I'd sort of figured it out. You know, I don't know. 
what would have happened with Roy and myself. But I do know that at that time, that's sort of where we were. So as I sit here talking about these times, and Gracie's now off at Disney, I mean, I have Jack who I watch, and it's impossible not to think back on Gracie and Molly and what they were like as babies. And, you know, you bring a child into the world and what you want is to give them everything you didn't get. And Gracie lost Molly. That's far worse than anything that happened to me in my childhood. You know, even the child abuse that messes with my head to this day, nobody died. You know, I didn't lose a sibling. I have all my siblings. And so I ache for Gracie in that regard. All the things that were troubling leading up to her death were nothing compared to this decimating thing that happened. And so I look at Jack and I think, oh, geez, here I am. I've brought this beautiful boy into the world and he's just so willing to be happy. He just wakes up with a big smile and he gives everyone he sees a smile. He's so precious. And I look at him and his helpless nature and how he relies on us for everything. And I, I wonder how people can be bad to babies and kids. Makes no sense to me. I just don't understand. Babies are such a gift. And then for, you know, for those of you that don't have children, but you're big into animals, like you love your pets. I, I, I had one dog and then I got sick because I was so allergic to the dog. I had to give her away. But I remember how much I loved her and how, how dedicated I was to her. She came to me as a teeny tiny puppy. And these a- animals do become completely dependent upon you. And the love that you have for something that's dependent upon you is profound and it's intense. And so that's what it's like with a child. You know, it's like, oh my God, I, I brought him here. And actually it's funny, he's getting almost a year old now, almost 11 months. And it was at about this time when Gracie was this age that I started to think, you know, she really needs a playmate. She needs somebody to be with. When I entered into this journey of having Jack, I was approved to have twins. I really wanted twins. And I had more than one embryo implanted and and just Jack developed. So I remember in the first few weeks of the pregnancy, I was pretty bummed out. So then I'm like, oh, one baby, this poor baby will be by himself or herself. What do I do now? So I, I'm not sure. You know, I know there are lots and lots of babies that could be adopted. I'm sort of looking into international adoption or maybe fostering. The thing with me in foster care, though, is, you know, oftentimes you can be an emergency foster parent for a newborn and you nurture that newborn and love it and care for it. And then it gets to go back to the parents, which is sometimes the right thing, sometimes not. So I'm not sure. Having lost a child, I don't know if I could do a foster placement thing because you have to give them back. And I think I would find that to be incredibly painful. But I have these little ponderings in my head about a playmate for Jack. (laughs) I know y'all think I'm nuts. I'm allergic to all animals, everything furry. So I can't get a dog or a cat or anything like that. But anyway, just Jack right now. When I finished up my last podcast, I was talking a lot about CrossFit. And I actually had an amazing experience this morning. I attend a CrossFit gym in Amesbury. And then I attend a CrossFit gym here in Concord called Amoskeg. And Two very, very different vibes and feelings in these gyms, both wonderful, which is what's great about CrossFit. You can really find a niche that fits you. So I was coaching this morning and on weekends, oftentimes the workouts are partner workouts. And it's really, really fun to get away from the normal programming and to do a partner workout that is sort of supportive fitness wise of your training. And so our gym has been struggling, really dropping in numbers and, you know, COVID really wreaked havoc on us and classes have been really small, one or two people. And the last, in the month of January, we've just sort of taken off a bunch of new members old members coming back. So this morning, eight o'clock on a Saturday, which is early for me, I coached a partner workout. We had eight people. So it was just tremendous. And it was, you know, eight unique people that don't always come to the same classes all the time. So people got to see people that are different. And I just had a blast. And then when I was done, one of the guys that works out, Tucker, he stayed and did some lifting. There was back squats in the programming. And so he did that. And then I did a workout where I ride hard on the bike for three minutes. And then I get off and I do, I did 20 kettlebell swings and 25 sit-ups. And I just did that until I reached 10,000 meters on the bike, which is like a 5K on the rower. 
it was a great workout. It took me about 30 minutes all together and, and I feel great. So I came home just in this wonderful place where I love the sense of community and all of that. So in those years, you know, 2011 to 2016, one of the things that was most difficult for me was refining a sense of community. I had been a teacher and a coach. And, and when you're working for a public school district, you have such a feeling of community. You have your department people at big, like I had all the health and PE teachers at Concord High. That was my little community. And then you coach. And so you have track coaches and all the coaches in your school and then all the track coaches in the state. And it's just this community. And then I was still competing sometimes. I'd run road races and that sort of thing. And so I had all my running community in a running club. And when I lost my job, all of that really disappeared. People didn't know what to think. And when I started to want to get back, you know, oh no, I don't have an actual job. One of the things I started to do was officiating the indoor track meets. I had been coaching indoor track, so I wasn't officiating. I had to officiate. And I remember I had to bring my letter of termination, which made it clear that I was safe to teach and that I hadn't you know, lost my teaching certificate. It was humiliating. You know, people that I've known for 20 years and I had to go through this and it was heart wrenching. Fortunately, people were very good to me. And so when I started officiating the track meets again, I love it. Before COVID, they were all at UNH. So you'd have three track meets on a Saturday, starting at eight in the morning and ending at like nine at night, like 300 to 500 kids per track meet. It was just organized chaos all day long. And I loved it. All this interaction with young people. And so it made me just feel like I was still a coach, like I was still, you know, a leader. I was looking through some of my Facebook memories and it was a picture of me organizing all the relay teams. So you have like kids in groups of four lined up and they're like 32 relay teams and they go in, they go in heats of three or four. And so I was organizing everybody. And this girl says to me, you're really good at this. You should be in charge. And then my response to her was, I am in charge, honey. Cause I was the clerk of that meet. So I was in charge of all the officials and everything. It was really sweet. But I remember in that first year of job loss that that was very important. Another thing I started to do was I went back to my road race timing job. Now I had gotten a job for my friend that was involved in my job loss. I had gotten her a job at this road race timing company, timing races. And then I had gotten my neighbor a job, the neighbor that suddenly didn't like me and wouldn't talk to me. And so now I'm going back to a job that I've had since 1996 that I have shared with two people in, you know, 2007 or eight, maybe for my friend, and then in maybe 2009 for my other friend. And so I, I sort of felt like, you know, I'm the one that got you these jobs. And I, I know the boss of my company was a little reluctant. And I really got angry at him because he's known me since I was in high school. And I just said, look, I got you these people to work and these things are going on and I'll tell you whatever you want to know. But, you know, <laughs> you get two sides to every story. And so I started timing the road races again, which actually worked out well because I worked with my sister. I pulled Johanna in. And so the two of us timed races together and we used the back of a vending truck. Kenny had a vending truck and we would just take all the food out of it or the soda anyway, not all the food. And we could put a table in there and it was great. We had all this junk food to snack on while we timed the road race. It was terrific. So that worked out really well. And so I did a lot of officiating and a lot of road race timing. And that sort of tied me over financially. And it also reconnected me to the running and track and field community. I had felt so isolated from that in losing my job. The hard part, you know, I live on a road, I'm looking out the window at the road now, that a lot of high school kids and, you know, teams run by. So I'd see girls that I used to coach running by and, you know, it was just sort of awful. Running in track and field was a huge, huge piece of my therapy. In my child loss and grief journey, I reconnected with all of my BU track and field teammates. I've said before, we were the first NCAA team at BU. BU poured a ton of money into it and developed a really good program for women's track and field and cross country. And there were about seven of us that were all recruited at the same time, you know, Title IX and quality in sports between men and women. It was wonderful. 
and those women are a huge part of my life still. My connection to running really needed to not go away. Mr. Ludi, Coach Ludi, was so supportive of me when my job loss happened. Mrs. Ludi was still alive at the time and she was supportive of, well, I went over there to sit and sort of share the whole story and they were just on my side 100%. And it was so reassuring to me that I could still be loved. You know, I talk about Coach Ludi quite a bit. I met him the first day of spring track in 1979. But I've also talked a lot about the book that I'm reading, The Body Keeps the Score, and how helpful it's been in my trauma bonding, connection to my body, PTSD life, and really, really lifting a veil on some of my decisions, why I allow people to treat me the way I allow them to do these circumstances I get into. Talking about running and getting into running didn't occur in the bookends of grief between the job loss and Molly loss. But, but I think I'm going to take a little break from that theme and talk about what it was like for me as a runner and getting into running because it relates so directly to my warped, confused, troubling relationship that I have with my body. Concord High School, when I was a high school student, was a three-year high school. Seventh, eighth, and ninth grade were at Runlet Middle School. 10th, 11th, and 12th were at Concord High, and it was called Runlet Junior High back then. It wasn't even Runlet Middle School. My sophomore year, when I went off to Concord High School, I was medically excused from taking PE because my asthma was so bad. I had had some really, really bad asthma in my middle school years. It was during a lot of family turmoil, which I'll talk about when I take my thousand tiny steps back to those years. So at Concord High in the fall, I was a cheerleader, went out for cheering, and I made soccer cheering. They had soccer cheerleaders back then. The cheerleading was tiered. All the really good cheerleaders were football, and then the next level was soccer. And then they had field hockey cheerleaders that went and cheered the girls' field hockey games, which I actually thought was awesome. That was my fall, and I didn't even think about sports. You know, I was asthmatic, although my asthma was getting better. I had started taking a couple of different medications that were the first preventative medicines. You know, asthmatics now have steroid inhalers and preventive medicines and all these different things to take to keep you from wheezing in the first place. And when I was growing up, it was just symptom addressing medicines. You started wheezing and then you took the medicine to make the wheezing stop. You know, those medicines weren't always very effective and they didn't do much to prevent the onset of wheezing. So I had a couple of different types of asthma. I have allergies season changes. I still have wheezy times in June and November. Those are my tricky months. Sometimes April is a tricky month. So if I was around cats or dogs or horses or things like this, I would have asthma. And then I also would have asthma when I got really overtired or stressed out or anxious. I also had asthma when I got out of breath. So if I started to run, I would have an asthma attack. So I have a recollection of elementary school first. I ran, we had the 600 yard dash and the president's physical fitness test. And I did it at Kimball and I was way ahead of everybody, like way, 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 way ahead of everybody. I ran this crazy time and then I collapsed afterward. And I think I had the record. I didn't even remember I had the record until I came back to teach in the district. One of the elementary PE teachers said, yeah, you know, you, you hold the 600 record. Remember you ran it and then you got carted off to the hospital and I had forgotten all about it. The episode I remember was trying to do the 600 in middle school PE at Runlet Junior High School and collapsing. And Mr. Lonergan, who was an assistant principal that later on lost his job, had to carry me in and I wheezed and wheezed for the remainder of the day. After that, I stopped doing PE. I just got medically excused from it. Of course, PE is a credit you need to graduate. So it didn't really dawn on me until I started running and suddenly PE was an issue that even though I was medically excused, I would have had to do something to earn PE credits. Sophomore year, I'd cheer in the fall. And then in the winter, I went to an indoor track meet or two with the indoor track coach. Also another story for another time. And so I sort of had this idea of maybe I should run track. And I never, ever, ever would have gone out for track if it weren't for the assistant coach. His name was Bruce McMahon, and he was also my biology teacher. And he 
said, you know, you, you're skinny and uh, you should just come out for track. You have a runner body. March 19th, 1979 was a Monday. And I went out for spring track. I signed up and I remember we had paperwork and I was getting all my paperwork and everything. And I went out to hand it in. You get the paperwork ahead of time and you get it filled out and signed. And I handed it all in. And he said, well, who are you? And I said, I'm Barbara Higgins. And he goes, well, it's nice to meet you. And he goes, what events do you do? And I said, I don't know, but I'm going to be a star. And I didn't know I was going to be a star, but for some reason, that's what I said to him. And he just chuckled. And then spring track started. So it was the spring of 1979. And my mom and dad were both pretty anxious. Like, what are you doing? One more thing for you to fail at. Because I had had so many failures due to my asthma, but I really was committed to trying it. I was taking the new medicine inhaler. It was like a little pill that you crushed. And then you inhaled the powder of the pill through this little special inhaler called a spin inhaler. And I would take that every day before track practice. And also this was when, when albuterol, Ventolin it was called, first came out. And it was, you know, a prescription inhaler that was easy on the lungs. And so every day before track practice, I would use the spin inhaler and I would take the albuterol and I would do one puff of each and then go to track. The first two weeks of spring track, everyone tries everything. I tried shot put and I tried high jump and I tried hurdles and I tried everything. And, you know, and each time I tried something, Mr. Ludo would say, why don't you go over with the distance runners? Eventually, after trying every single thing, I was put with the distance runners, which was the half of the team that couldn't do any of the events. <laughs> so I kind of felt like a failure, like, okay, plan B is distance running, not knowing what was ahead of me. So Mr. Ludi coached the sprinting and the field events and all of that. And Mr. McMahon coached the distance runners. And so the first day that I went on an actual run, we did Brady Loop, and which is like from Concord High School, it's a short three-miler. We called it three, but it probably wasn't. And I was way in the back. And I had to jog and walk and jog and walk. And I had some wheezing, not a lot, but some. And that's what I did. I did this three-mile run. And so so began my journey. I don't remember the date of this, but I do remember that we had done some different workouts. We did these repeat miles around the park. And I did like nine minutes for my running as hard as I could. It was like a nine-minute mile. And then I had to sit the second one out because I was wheezing. And then my wheezing stopped and I could do the next one. Those first couple of weeks of track, the first two weeks maybe, it was pretty quick. It was tricky for me. It was hard for me to really know what I was doing. I ran with a friend of mine named Deb and we would run together a lot. And she was much better than me, but she was nice enough on distance days to come back and jog with me and all this. So she got sick and was gone for like a week of track practice. So during that week, I had this breakthrough run and I'll never forget it. It was Fisk Loop. So you go up Auburn Street and up Little Pond Road and down Fisk and Pleasant Street back to the high school. And it's a five mile loop from the high school. And so that was our run for the day. And so I started out with everybody and I was way in the back. And I remember having a wonderful time. I was running with a girl named Julia Dett and Kim Smallage, those two. And the three of us were running together and we're trotting along and we're sort of joking about how we're the back of the Packers and we don't mind. And we got up toward the end of Auburn Street where it, where it almost connects to Little Pond Road. And I know these streets mean nothing to anyone who doesn't live here, but all of a sudden I just started to feel good. Like my breathing got ahead of itself and suddenly I wasn't wheezing at all. For someone that doesn't have asthma, this won't make sense to you, but I could breathe. Like I had this amazing, normal breathing. It was the most amazing experience I'd ever had. So I said to Julie and Kim, okay, I'm going to pick it up. I think I feel pretty good. And so I picked it up and picked it up. And I just started passing people and catching people and passing people and catching people and passing people. So when you get to Little Pond Road, it's up, up, uphill. And I love running uphill. You shorten your steps, you trot up. I've always been a pretty good uphill runner. And this day was really no different. I really enjoyed how I felt. I had light blue, my gymnastics warm-up suit on, and I running along. So I caught up to Coach McMahon and Pam Starrett and Nanette Trombley. And they were like the two best runners on the team at that time. And a girl named Kathy, I believe. 
I caught up. And so he looks over and he's like, what are you doing here? Did you get a ride? And I said, I don't know. I feel really good. And so I finished the run with them. Now, I will say by the time we got back onto Pleasant Street and headed to a Concord High, I was dizzy and tired. It was hard. You know, these were people that were good runners. And so I got back and I was just blown away that I'd been able to do this thing. And so I remember going home and telling my mom and dad, guess what I did today? I ran fist. I ran five miles. So excited. That was it. I had turned some sort of corner with my breathing. And I now realized that if I started off easy and gave myself time to warm up, that my breathing would be fine. So the next day, or maybe two days later, we had the workout around White's Park again. So I'm looking at it because we ran right around it. It's one mile. And we, so we did three repeats. And so the first time I had done this, it was, you know, nine minutes, like really slow. So my friend Deb was back and she hadn't seen, known that I had had this sort of breakthrough. So we did the first mile and I ran like 7.42 or 7.40. And I was like just behind Nanette and Pam and, and all the good runners at the front. And so I was so excited. Look at me, look at me. I'm up with the good runners. And then the second one, I was like 7.20. In the last one, the last mile around the park, I got under seven minutes. I think I ran like 6.45. And Coach McMahon was like, what am I looking at? So he told Coach Ludi, And so Coach Ludi now suddenly sort of took a little bit of an interest. Meanwhile, now I've been running three weeks in my whole life and I'm asthmatic and running is the last thing I thought I could do. So we had a little inter-squad meet where Coach Ludi divided the team and there were Bruce's Mooses and Ludi's Cuties. And we divided up. I was put in all three distance events, the 800, the 1600, and the 3200. So the half mile, the mile, and the two mile. And I remember I ran like 242 for the 800, which was actually a really, a really good time for somebody that's just starting out. And I ran maybe 13 minutes or something for the two mile. I don't quite know. But I ran, I ran a 553 mile. Everybody was sort of dumbfounded by this because now I'm under six minutes. My first timed mile was 609. It was 609, I think I did around the park. At any rate, I ran this really fast time, maybe 609, right around there. And so suddenly things were a bit different. A week after the inter-squad meet, we had our first, our first actual meet. It was against Hanover. And I ran against a girl named Mia. Can't think of her last name right now, but she was a really good runner. I was told she's a really good runner and all this kind of stuff. The mile came and I was running just the mile in that to get a track meet. And so I stayed with her. And I remember I went around, I'm right behind Mia and Coach Ludi's like, slow down, slow down, because I was running much too fast. Long story short, I ran 542 in the mile that day and got second to this really, really good runner who maybe was 10 seconds ahead of me. I'm not sure. And that was it. That was the beginning of Barb Higgins as a good runner. My name was in the paper. I progressed all spring. I ran the 800. I remember he had a meet at Dover and I ran the mile. Then I ran the 800 and I ran like 238. And I remember after I was done with my two races, Mr. Ludi just held my hand and made me follow him all around holding my hand. And I think he just wanted to keep me safe. I don't know what he was thinking, but I just knew that something big was happening with me. And that was the beginning. That whole spring, every single race was a personal best. Every single race was a new, exciting venture. It was wonderful. And so to qualify for the Class L meet, I had to run like under maybe 536. It wasn't super, super hard at the time. And I qualified, I qualified for class L's. And so the class L meet comes, now it's called division one. And coach Ludi's away on a trip. Coach McMahon is in charge. And so it was at Salem High School. And I just wanted to qualify for the state meet. But I mean, I didn't really think I could. You had to come in the top five to make it to the state meet or maybe the top six. And so I ran and I came in fourth. Yay, I made states. So then the state meet was in Concord. I'll never forget it because it was an evening meet, SATs in the morning. So the meet was in the afternoon, the evening. And we have a, psychiatric hospital right across the street from our track. And there was a resident that got out, that escaped. He came over and streaked through the 
through the track meet. So this streaker on the track, this naked guy running around the police chasing him. So the whole track meet had to stop. My race was like the next one up. So I was all frantic about this, you know, let's get this race going. There's a streaker on the track. I had to come in the top five to make it to New England's, I believe. I did. I placed fifth. I made the New England. So this was huge because I'd never run, run before. And I ran 5.30 that time. So I went from 5.36 to 5.30. And then a week later, it was the New England's. And I went to New England's and I placed sixth. And I got, I ran 5.24. So I finished my first like two and a half months of running and was the sixth best miler in New England in 1979. And so began my running career. So why is this an important piece? Well, keep in mind that I was constantly trying to divest myself from my body. I didn't think I was pretty. I was skinny. I had horrible acne at the time. I hated how I looked. I finally had my braces off, but my teeth had stains from the braces that took years to go away. I just hated myself. And then I didn't like how I felt. Physical abuse can just leave you cringy with your body. And of course, I'm a teenager and dating and all of the social pressures that go along with being a high school student. And, and running, suddenly, I was perfect for something. I don't want to sound egotistical about it because nobody's perfect, but I had this sport that I loved doing. And I can remember when I first got my legs under me and my lungs under me and I would be running and I would look down and I would see my form and I would think, I have really good running form. I don't really know what running form is. I didn't know at the time anyway. I was so comfortable and I just loved it. I loved how I felt. And running was a place, track and field was a place where being skinny was not a bad thing. You know, I always felt like, well, my boobs aren't big enough and I look like I'm 12 and I have no ass. And, you know, it's funny because people who are overweight, girls who are heavy in high school feel very, very ostracized because they feel fat. And, oh, you're so lucky you're skinny. And I never felt lucky that I was skinny ever. I felt like when people called it out, I just, in my head, I was like, well, you don't call out people for being fat. Why are you commenting on my body? And it, it's really, really tricky. Gracie recently had a CrossFit coach call her out on being too thin, like in front of everybody. Are you eating enough protein? You know, you ought to gain some weight. And she just stood there like horrified. You don't body shame on any level, fat or skinny. Running for me was a place where I finally felt like I had a beautiful body that could do beautiful things. And I liked how I felt when I ran. Now, this is the double-edged sword because how do you do well in a race? Well, you step out so you, you don't feel yourself because you know how to step out and step away from what's happening to your body. So in a distance race, that's really, really hard and you're tired and you're out of breath and the ocean's roaring in your ears and everything hurts and everything in your body is saying, stop. You just step out of that, go someplace else. I don't feel it. And you just keep running. It was both for me on my training runs. And when I was doing track workouts, oh my God, I just loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved every aspect of running long runs, workouts, track workouts, hill repeats, road races, track meets, cross-country meets. Cross-country was probably my least favorite as an athlete. And I'll get into that in a minute. You know, the summer of 1979, I joined a local running club. I ran with people two nights a week. I ran a bunch of road races. I, I just felt like I, like I found my people. And it was such a wonderful feeling. And it, it's reminiscent now of Molly when she had got into theater and started doing RB productions and Peg at middle school. And she just said, Mommy, I found my people. This is where I belong. And it's such a wonderful feeling. doesn't matter what your passion is. I think the reason that the arts and athletics are so important and should never be cut from education is that's where students find their niche. They find themselves. And even students that find their niche in the classroom, they connect with other people. So they join academic clubs. Well, then they're in a group and there's their group and their niche and their passion. And so for me, it was running. I became Barb the Runner and there were newspaper articles and, and you know, I wanted to get a school record and all these things happened. So then I became a two-sport athlete. I didn't run indoor track. The indoor track at UNH at the time was, the infield was dirt 
And so it was just this dusty, dusty thing. And asthma wise, I never, I couldn't have survived. I don't think I, so I never did indoor track. I did cross country in the fall and spring track in the spring. I Nordic skied in the winter. The one year I was on the Nordic ski team, there was no snow. So all of our races were running, which was fine. And then my senior year, I just trained. I just did mileage to get ready for spring track. My track seasons were amazing and cross country. So I didn't run cross country till my junior year. So my junior year, I was top, you know, nine or 10th in the state. And then I went to New England and had this amazing race and placed fourth. So in the three people ahead of me, one was New Hampshire, one was Rhode Island. It was Marty Shea. Hmm, I can't remember who won, but Marty Shea and Julie McCrory and then me. Julie went to Providence College, gosh, a long time ago. And Marty came to be with me. So it was clear that running was really what I was, what I was destined to do. This was my sport. My biological father was an unbelievable hurdler and broad jumper. They called it broad jump back then. And he ran track and field at Yale. I have his uniform still, not right here, but it's beautiful. It's this old, old uniform from 1936, you know, and then my mother did a lot of my training with me in high school. She, you know, I think back now when I was 15, my mother was 36. Like I, I didn't even have babies at 36. You know, I didn't even start my motherhood journey until after that. You know, I thought it was good for you at your age and I'm 36 isn't old at all for running. So I had the genetics, you know, I think I had the genetics and coach Ludi always said I had really natural endurance. And I also think I just had the mindset. I had the addictive personality and I had the mindset of finding some sort of emotional release in physical pain. A lot of people in my journey with child abuse become cutters or they pull their hair out or they pick at their skin or they bite their nails. Lots and lots of self-damaging things because you find comfort in physical pain. And I would have to agree with that. I think there are times when I know in some of my harder moments, I'll squeeze, squeeze, squeeze my hands as hard as I can. When you, of course, you have long fingernails, at least leaves fingernail marks. I can remember as a child doing that. I, I was never one, you know, I never developed eating disorders. I think I was lucky and my, my addictions were drugs and alcohol because those are things you can avoid to overcome. You can't avoid food, you know, anorexia or bulimia, all those things. I have so much respect for girls and women and a handful of men that overcome eating disorders because you can't avoid food. It's like telling a hardcore drunk that you have to manage alcohol. It's just an impossibility sometimes. On through high school, my junior year, I broke the school record at Concord High at our first meet. I had a wonderful season, again, improving and improving and improving. My personal bests went down to 506 in the mile and 218 in the 800. And that was a school record. So I had these two school records now. And I also broke the school record in the two mile as well. So I had established myself as a force to be reckoned with. In a sort of leap of faith, Coach Ludi put me in the four by four because I had a really good kick and I had good leg speed. And when we did all out things in time trials, like team-wide time trials. I was right up with the sprinters, like in the 200 and the 400. My junior year, I became a member of the four by 400 meter relay team, or we called it the mile relay back then, which was a huge status thing at the time because they had been New England champions and the athletes on the four by four were some of the best athletes in the school. When I was in high school, people seldom did one sport year round. I mean, there was like club hockey and club football sometimes and club baseball, but all great athletes were multi-sport athletes. Jane Harbrook was New England champion of shot put, and she was the first high school girl to score a thousand points in basketball. She did soccer in the fall, and people just did a variety of sports. It wasn't so specialized like it is now. The summer after my junior year, I continued my, I continued my running, training in the summer and running road races and that sort of thing. My senior year cross country, I had a really, I had a really rough pat. Well, I, I ran well. I ran really well in the beginning. I peaked much too quickly. We had a coach that did all the speed workout. And I came into the season fit, so it didn't take long. 
And I ran 1732 at Dairy Field on a 5K there. And then that was my fastest time of the season. I might have run 1729. It was fast. State Class Almeida, I got hypothermia. I got really sick and I ended up staggering to the finish and finishing like fourth or fifth. It was pretty bad. I was not okay. And then in the meet of champions, I ended up second or third. Kathy O'Brien was this eighth grader and I had raced against her. She was Kathy Skiro then. And I had raced against her in the fall and gotten lost on the course and she won. And I, it was just this horrible premonition. I just had this bad feeling. She like burst onto the scene and this little eighth grader running, you know, 17 minutes and creaming all of us. So I got third. It was Kathy, Marty, me. New England's came and Marty got really sick and she couldn't run. So it was just Kathy. So I took off and really tried to win New England's and I was way ahead. And then I was tanking and Kathy was catching up and I knew that she'd passed me and beat me. So I ended up second. I was heartbroken with second, but what are you going to do? All winter long and into the spring, it became this mindset for me that I wanted to break five minutes in the mile. And I didn't even, you know, Coach Ludy was terrific. He's like, don't even think about Kathy O'Brien or Kathy Skiro. <laughs> I know her as Kathy O'Brien now. You know, just think about what you want to do. So I wanted to break five minutes in the mile. So I had a really, really rough January. I had some really, I had a really emotional January. I went through a really rough, rough patch with this guy that I was seeing and, and it was devastating. And I, you know, didn't get out of bed. I wouldn't go to school. I wanted to kill myself. It was, there might've even been like a foiled suicide attempt in there. And I remember my mother being so nervous and I'd get up at like midnight and go running or running at 10 o'clock at night. I didn't want anyone to see me. She'd follow me in the car. She was so sweet. She just didn't want anything to happen to me. I rallied around that. And I finally went back to school. I pulled myself together. I don't want to die anymore. I, I can do this. I can live. I'll be okay. And it was a lot of hard work. And so I just focused on running. So I set all these goals for myself. Like I stopped, you know, I was a big party girl with my friends and I just said, nope, I'm not going to drink at all. And I'm going to go to bed every night at 10 o'clock. And I did. I, and I can remember one night getting into bed at 10. It was a weekend night. And I hear all this giggling outside. And I look outside my window and my friends are spray painting on the street. We love you, Barb. <laughs> it was great. So all winter, you know, that all went along fine. And I got fitter and fitter and fitter. And spring track came. It's my senior year and I'm so excited and I'm just ready to do great things. And so we had, Coach Ludy and I had a very specific plan whereupon I would break five minutes in the mile. So everything was going well and then I got horribly sick. April vacation week, so that's the last week of April, I got really bad pneumonia. I still have actually some, when you look at a chest x-ray of me, there's like a patch, like a hazy patch. And it was just, it's just some scarring from the pneumonia that I had. I was really sick. And my doctor was like, you will not run for three weeks. And I'm thinking, no, thank you. So I, I stayed home that week. And it was a really, really sunny, hot week. I remember it was coughing and coughing and I was laying out in the sun all the time. My mother and I were sun freaks. And so I had this amazing tan and pneumonia. So school started up and I just went back to track practice and started running. And I just lied to my doctor. I couldn't not run. And I was horrified that this had interrupted everything and I wouldn't break five minutes in the mile. Mr. Ludi was a bit irritated. Like, how could you get so sick? Well, I'm asthmatic. I don't know. The month of May was tense because I really wanted this to happen. The other piece was the Kathy piece. So I remember Marty and I hooking up at a track meet. All right, let's get her. This is our year. This is our year, you know, just wanting to win and beat Kathy. And so we did. We raced her in a two mile and I actually outkicked both of them, which didn't make, it didn't make Marty too happy. She was pretty upset with me. But at any rate, it was a good two mile race. I outkicked everybody and won the race. And, you know, that was that. Class L's comes. It's like division one is now. And it was at Winnicott High School. And I was unbelievably nervous. Like, I can't even tell you how nervous I was. The mile commences and we're running. And I hadn't come close to the 506 that I'd run the year before at this time. I, I had run maybe 511. I was not, still not back. We're running, running along and Kathy sort of took off and I just sat on her. She was willing to lead the race. I just sat on her and sat on, actually sat on me for a while. And then I sat on her 
and I outkicked her. It was it was a relatively easy victory. I just I passed her at the three hundred or you know the back stretch and just barreled it home and won the race. And I ran like five hundred four, maybe five hundred three, I think, and I won class L's. And so I felt vindicated because I had, you know I finally was the senior and I should be winning. And Marty also was ahead of Kathy in the two miles. So we as seniors felt like this is our time, you know. And here's just the eighth grader. God bless her. She must have been so intimidated. And I ran the 800 and the four by four as well. So then state meet comes and it's here in Concord. And I'll never forget, I went down to this running store on Main Street called The Long Run. And the guy that owned it, Jay Kolb, was a boyfriend of mine for a couple of years. And he was phenomenal. And I was so nervous. I remember my armpits smelled so bad. I'm like, what the heck? And I was just so nervous because today was the day it was going to happen. It was in the evening. It was at Memorial Field. It was a hot, hot, muggy day. And there was a big thunderstorm that rolled by and just downpoured everything. And then it lifted. And I'd run the four by four and I had peed my pants, which I do. I was soaking wet. And so somebody said, well, here, change. Well, I had these good luck underwear and it's like, no way I was going to change. So my friend Suzanne lived right down the street from the track. So we went to her house and we put my underpants and track shirts in the dryer and dried them and I put them back on so I could wear my good luck undies. Oh God, here comes the mile. And I actually have, I have a recording of it. Movie cameras were brand new then, like brand new portable ones. And so I have it on a DVD. Coach Ludi made it for me, a copy. So I'll put that on a webpage or something so y'all can watch 17-year-old Barb run the mile. But the gun went off and I'll never forget it. It was just one of those races that, you know, when I talk about stepping out in my life still, there are times when things are so stressful that I'm suddenly next to myself or across the room and I'm watching myself. I remember when I first started teaching and I was in my first like big IEP meeting, all of a sudden I'm sitting in the corner looking at the meeting and I'm staring at myself. And I know that must sound incredibly psychotic. It's not that I wasn't also inside myself and managing, but it's like this piece of me steps out and turns around and watches to make sure I'm doing it okay. And, you know, I was playing with my button and playing with my earring and I was, Barbara, don't look so nervous. And so I'd stop looking so nervous. So the race unfolded and it was kind of that way. I felt like I was running next to myself. Everything just unfolded. This girl named Kim Koch took off really fast, which was great. She brought us out in 70 seconds, which is a nice quick, that's 440 mile pace. You know, that's fast. And then the pace settles down and she sort, sort of starts to fall back. And at the end of the second lap, the 800 were at 226, which is now, that's like 452 pace now. And so, okay, we slowed down quite a bit. So now we run along and in the third lap, Kathy passes everybody. She goes by me and she goes by Kim and a couple of other people that were right around us. And now she's in the lead. And she made this move early because it's the only way she could get ahead of me and I would not kick her. Get enough ahead that I can't catch her. I think that's what her coach had thought. She made this move right in front of where Coach Jaludi was standing. And so I just looked at him and he's just like, so I passed and I methodically made my way up. So as we went into lap four, I had essentially caught up to her, caught up to her enough that I knew I could catch her. Lap four, the final lap was just this slow catching of Kathy. And so coming off the last turn up by the scoreboard at the top of the track, I became, came even with her and she held on. She held on. I mean, we fought, we came off the turn and we were side by side by side. And then with about 50 meters to go, I pulled ahead and I won and ran 456.1. And it was probably one of the single greatest days of my life because it was something that I had dreamed about for two years. And I had had a horrible senior year with some very traumatic things happening to me. And I was able to pull it together and break five minutes in the mile. Why am I taking all of you through the details of a race that many of you weren't even born when I ran it? I guess my point is that the damage inside of me and the, the way that I struggled emotionally and socially, you know, I became very popular once I was a track star and I never really understood all that, but it was such a singularly great event that I could pull it all together and do this. So many girls that go through what happened to me don't even ever get here. And 
you know, as bad as my abuse was, I had members in my family that were solid. I never, ever felt unloved or unsupported. And I think, I think that balance is what brought me to that place. And that sub five minute mile got me a free college education. And, and I traveled to California with Marty under the tab of Ked Shoe Company and ran, I ran at UCLA. We stayed and ran two track meets there. I ran 429 in the 1500 there. That's an incredibly fast time. That's like a 449 mile. I had these amazing experiences and just came into myself. And, you know, I look at, I look at sweet Gracie B at age 20, living on her own in Disney and, and auditioning. And I know that one day she'll be a princess helper and she'll dance in shows and she'll do amazing things. I know she will. And to me, that's her sub five minute mile. It's her realizing that, yeah, my life has been sucky and I'm just going to take it and make it great. And that's what running did for me. And so that mindset of, look, Barbara Jean Higgins, you broke five minutes in the mile as an asthmatic, sexually abused, traumatized, drink too much, unstable teenage girl. And you pulled it together and did this great thing. I've kept that as my sort of solid, you know, my solid, I'm okay, I'm okay thing all through my life. When I'm feeling really, really, really sad about things, I think back to things that I've accomplished that people thought I couldn't do. And I say that now, I say that about CrossFit when I'm in CrossFit, how I love to do things that people think I can't do. In this period of time, in the bookends of grief, back to the years between job loss and Molly loss, I really, really, really learned to pull from that sub five minute miler. And when I got into CrossFit, what I loved most about it was that community. I remember the first time I, when we got our uniforms handed to us and we put them on, and I remember getting on the bus for our first away meet and I'm like, wow, I'm like on an actual Concord High team. I'm like wearing the uniform, like I'm part of this. It was an incredible feeling for me. I'll never forget it. And I met amazing people and had amazing experiences with people that I was afraid to talk to two months prior. You know, I share this because I know a lot of you listening are Gracie's age and maybe younger and some old, I don't know, but I just feel like always in life, we're presented with these opportunities to step out in a good way, things that we think we can't do. And that we, in the struggles to get there, we find that, wow, we did this great thing. So I share that, I share that because Coach Ludi and, and even all the, the trials and tribulations with Coach McMahon, which I'll talk about in a different season, running, running really saved me. It saved me, it saved me. And when I lost it all with my job loss, I just thought I was so angry at myself for letting myself get put into a situation where people could hurt me that way. You know, I just felt stupid, but it was running ultimately that pulled me out of it and got me into the CrossFit gym. And so for me and my body and living inside of it and my body keeping the score, I think as damaged as my body can be and as how physically connected to stress and such that I am, I've made myself healthy and well by all the things I do for my body, the food that I put into it and the exercise and the stretching and the mobility. I stand in front of a mirror now and I miss you know, I'm 58. My days, I think of having a beautiful body in that traditional sense are behind me, but I want so much to be able to look in the mirror and love what I see and love myself. And in recovering from this relationship ending with Roy and trying to redefine myself, it's hard for me sometimes to feel okay to look at myself and like myself. But again, it's a great, it's a great challenge. And in those years between losing my job and losing Molly, navigating my separation from Kenny and staying with Kenny and wanting a perfect home for the girls and navigating, not imagining life without Roy and please don't leave me and somehow wanting him in my life and not knowing how to make that happen and not having the guts to just take a step. You know, I didn't have the guts to step out on either side. And, and you know, I just treaded water, I think is how I look at it. There's a book called The World According to Garp. 
by John Irving, great uh, New Hampshire writer. And there's a character, Walter, and he's this little boy with intense anxiety. He causes an anxiety, the undertoad. So the undertoad is how he pronounces undertow. So you can look, I think of Corporation Beach in Cape Cod. It doesn't have big waves. It's, a, it's in the bay. There aren't big waves there. You have to go to the ocean side to get the waves. And so you have what looks like a smooth ocean, but it's a bay. The tide comes in and the tide goes way out. And so when the tide is going out, the undertow underneath the water is strong. So when you're swimming, if you dive down deep, you get pulled. You can get really pulled by this undertow, but it's invisible. You don't see it from the top. The water looks smooth. Walter calls his anxious, nervous tummy days, the undertow is strong today. And so I've used that analogy so much in my life, the undertow. And, and in the years, the bookends of grief between crying in the recliner because I lost my job to sobbing, sobbing, sobbing on the living room floor because I've lost Molly. The undertoad was strong all the time for me. It was always, it was just pervasive. I was always feeling like I was managing these invisible things that, that were pulling at me. You know, school board and all this, the issues around the school district and Roy and Kenny and not having any money and losing the house and, you know, just trying so hard to keep my head above water all the time and just having moments of great joy and amazing, amazing times with the girls at dance competitions and concerts and all the things that you do with your teenage girls. And, and sometimes the four of us, Kenny and me and the girls doing these things together and having great times and thinking, okay, I can do this. And then spending days with Roy, you know, I, I have to correct myself. I said, I only spent 17 days away from Gracie, but I had several, you know, overnights and trips with Roy that were phenomenal. And this amazing little break in my life where I could make believe I was something I wasn't, I guess, I don't know, but it was all of this sort of undertoed, 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 waiting for the big crash. And in, in the book, Walter has a bit of a traumatic experience. I don't want to give it away in case you haven't read the book. John Irving is an amazing author. I've read every book he's written. Cider House Rules and A Prayer for Owen Meany, Hotel New Hampshire. So many great books by John Irving. <laughs> anyway, I digress. So I'm going to end here. I guess if I have a message in this particular episode, other than just sharing my little running journey, is that in 10 weeks time, really, maybe 12 weeks at the most, I went from a thin asthmatic, unpopular girl who didn't really know who she was to somebody who loved her body and felt strong and confident physically and emotionally and was really good at something. And it was just, I took a chance and, and it was the greatest thing ever. And so I don't know where all of you are in your lives. If there's a chance you want to take, if there's something you want to get back to, if there's something that you love, you know, do it because, because ultimately to you and your body, you living in your little soul house, that's what I call bodies, your soul house. It's the house for your soul or your energy or your personality or whatever you want to call it. You know, I use the word soul because it's soulful and meaning to me. As we go through these episodes, I'm going to focus a lot on the physical emotional connection and talk about some experiences that I had during those years that were really eye-opening for me. And some of them are personal and then some of them are Molly and Gracie experiences and things like this. But I hope that by sharing those years of my life, not only can I be of help, but I'll keep finding when was it that Molly's death was really sealed? Because I do feel what led me to be in Amsterdam in the first place and not hear from Molly and what led me to be not focused in the months leading up to not being here for Molly were set in motion years before. And I just don't know when that started and how that started. And I do think that a lot of it is connected to all the traumatic events leading up to Molly. And one was my job loss. And so in looking at how I managed my job loss and how I chose to move along from it, I think sheds light into maybe step 500 of the thousand tiny steps that, that brought me to the, the day in May 
where I had to unplug her. That's where my mind goes. I hope that this was interesting for you. Any of you that have ever, ever set a goal and achieved it, any of you that ever run for me, I, you know, if you're ever a barb athlete, any of you that are athletes yourselves or artists or musicians or thespians or whatever, and have had a moment like this, I hope that you can connect and, and somehow use your passion to help you feel better when you're not feeling well. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you for the comments and the emails and the posts and the likes. And thank you for you know subscribing to my YouTube page and to Apple Podcasts and all those things. I really do appreciate it. I feel very, very, very loved. I have an incredible number of downloads up to, I think like 2,800 downloads now, which is, I guess, good for a podcast that's only 24 episodes in. I don't, I don't know. And I'm, I'm not in it for the numbers. I'm just in it because it's really helping me. I actually, I have to share one final thing. So I'm so, so sorry. So I went to a, an Amesbury, CrossFit Amesbury Christmas party and I met this guy named Sean. And so here I am with meeting people. I sometimes feel that the universe puts us where we need to be. And Gracie and I weren't going to go. It's nighttime and Jack. And so Jack stayed home with Kenny and Gracie and I went. And so I only know a couple of people because they only go to the Momstrong class primarily. So I get there and it's at a restaurant I'd been to before, actually. It was in Newburyport. I'd gone there with Roy for dinner once. So I'm like, oh, I know where this place is. We went to the little function room and people were there. And I saw this gentleman sitting at a table and he just had really nicely coiffed hair and he was dressed really well. So I'm like, I'll go talk to him. And I sat down and we just began chatting. And he is this amazing human being. He's athletic. He's in business. He's big into Instagram and interviewing and using Instagram as a social media tool. And he interviews people. I you know, followed him on Instagram and started listening to his interviews and they're phenomenal. Really, really amazing people that he connects with. I agreed for an interview. So I just had an interview with him. Now, unfortunately, you have to follow him to be able to see the interview, but we spent an hour just talking about everything. Molly, Jack, my life, running, my job, law, and just everything. It was really, really great. So his name is Sean Waite and he's terrific. And I'm giving him a little shout out. So anyway, that happened this week and there are a lot of good things coming up for me, which I'll get into in my next episode. I'll share some of those things then. Again, as always, thank you for listening and have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.